From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. At the heart of Nichelle Frank's recent work on environmental cleanups in mining towns in the western United States are two towns dealing with the toxic aftermath of their industrial past. In Globe, Arizona, and Leadville, Colorado, some residents were worried that, as bad as the environmental damage to their towns might have been, the stigma associated with being the site of active remediation efforts by the Environmental Protection Agency could actually be worse. But Frank believes there's something else at play, a battle between local knowledge and general expertise. And her explorations of the way that battle played out in Globe and Leadville may help inform the way that future government officials and local residents can discuss the challenges that they face, not just in matters of environmental cleanups, but in many other areas in which differences of opinions and values hover over decisions that are going to impact many people's lives. Nichelle Frank is an assistant professor of U.S. history at Utah State University Eastern, where she studies the effects of the U.S. environmental and historic preservation movements on cultural landscapes in intermountain mining towns. Nichelle Frank, welcome. Thank you so much, Matthew. It's great to be here. You know, there, there are hundreds of Superfund sites in the American West, and I think scores of these are within or very, very close to the borders of small towns like Globe and Leadville. But these are two of the places you've focused a lot of your research efforts. What was it about these two places that has been so interesting to you? That's a great question. Yeah, it was actually pretty hard to figure out which towns to study, Um, came up with the idea of studying U.S. West mining towns and environment and all of that first, and then started looking around, which towns, what what ones might have something interesting to say beyond a lot of the stuff we already know about mining towns. Well, and one of them was called Leadville, so so there's that, right? Right. I mean, it's funny you mentioned that one. I grew up in Colorado and used to visit up near Leadville, go camping outside that area. So it actually didn't ever strike me as that strange, but I can see how it was. Did you know then? Did you know that it was a cleanup site? I did not. No, not at all. No. It's something that is part of the story, right? That a lot of the time this doesn't get as much attention. We're going to get back to Leadville in a moment here. I I want to start in this place, Globe, Arizona, in... 1979, federal and state officials discovered elevated levels of asbestos at the site of a mobile home community. This is a community that was actually built on an old mining site. And this clearly worried some local residents, but a lot of them were really resistant to the idea that there was, not that there was contamination in the soil, but that it was having health effects. Can you talk about that? That one was a big surprise to me. It was a site where I knew there had been mining and all of that. I had no idea about its relation to the asbestos industry, even after a few years of studying the place. Just hadn't found a lot of information on it. And so as I started looking into that, that's when I found out that story. So it had been a former mill site where they would bring the ore from these asbestos mines north of town 
and then crush it up and release the asbestos fibers into the air. And for a while, this seemed to be fine because it was on the outskirts of town. But after there were some challenges with following some air quality measures and controls, one of those mills over there got shut down. The owner of that land decided to resell it and have it be this mobile home community. So that's what ends up happening and people are living there and they start to see these asbestos fibers floating around and officials, state officials who are looking really at other issues in the area, kind of looking through the water and and checking on it, notice those fibers and then they're concerned and it turns into a whole state level emergency, makes the national news, all of this. Um, So there are people there who they live in those communities, but people in town closer in are the ones that are really pushing back. So it made an interesting moment to try and uncover what's going on there. And part of this pushback is related to this thing that you're talking about. This made the national news. Nobody outside of Arizona and maybe outside of the county where Globe is had ever heard of Globe. And then all of a sudden Globe is famous, but for this, for this really terrible thing. Yeah. And they were very concerned about that. It's a town that by the 70s is really struggling quite a bit, as many mining towns were. And that was something that would prompt them to be unable to say things like, hey, visit our cool little town here out in the Old West kind of idea. Tourist location, something like that, using that Old West notion. But if you've got environmental problems and health problems, then the ability to do that is really not there. So town leaders in particular, or people invested in the economy of Globe are pushing back against that kind of stigma that comes from something like a Superfund designation. And they're saying, hey, look around. Go ahead. Try to find us somebody who's sick. Because... There sure doesn't seem to be many people. And they're pointing out that there were people who were actively involved in the mining who weren't sick. This becomes sort of the evidence that they use to push back, right? Yeah, they're very focused on stating this is not something that exists in our town. We have people who have worked in this industry for decades and they're not having lung problems, which, of course, with asbestos, that's the main concern. And without that local evidence that they could tie directly to asbestos exposure, they're unconvinced. It's maybe easy to look back on that and go, well, they were just trying to save their town, so they're denying the evidence. But the specific kind of asbestos that was milled there, I think still hasn't been tied to health effects today, right? Like it's it's still a little bit uncertain. It is. There's at least three kinds of asbestos. Um, In particular, what they were milling there is chrysotile asbestos. And it's particularly desirable as a form of asbestos. It's got these very long fibers. But that one has been the one that a lot of people, when they look at it, they question, does this really lead to health problems? Uh, There is a lot of 
debate over it among government officials and things like that, health officials. Primarily, though, even by the 1980s, there were a lot of people in the Center for Disease Control and in the Environmental Protection Agency that were saying, no, even that one, we don't want to see that form. But those folks, they faced a bit of a statistical challenge. When the EPA was pushing for what many locals saw as a very drastic measure to protect them against asbestos, Globe, this little town in Arizona, was so small, and the number of people exposed was even smaller, and the number of people at this mobile home park was even smaller. So it was unlikely that a statistically significant exposure and effect relationship would be patently obvious at that time or even ever, right? Right. And that's exactly what, for for instance, the mayor there wrote to EPA officials and said, we're not seeing that. Um, It's really not here. And when he got a response, the EPA officials are saying, we get that. (laughs) We, We totally understand. Yes, you're not seeing some direct evidence there but you do have this incredibly small sample size. You've got this small community. You also have people moving away, which actually I don't really see a lot of discussion of that in the the debates they were having, but people are moving away too. So what is happening to those people? Did any of those people get sick? So there's some interesting questions about transient populations as well. At one point, some of these resistors in Globe, the people who were not ready to believe that there were health consequences happening as a result of this asbestos uh, contamination, they found a guy who looked to them like the kind of expert the government would listen to. You know, PhD who, you know, is dived into the research and then the government dismisses this guy outright. Yeah, there's two two men in particular in Globe, Mike Wood and Alvin Gerhardt, who are really invested in saying asbestos, especially chrysotile, is just not bad for you. There's not enough evidence to support that. And through all of their efforts, they are writing to all sorts of people, and they find this guy, Dr. Malcolm Ross, He's a geologist with the, the United States government, federal government, and he is on board with that. He's actually been known to say the same thing, that chrysotile asbestos is just not, there's not enough evidence to prove it. And he's using things like a study done at an asbestos mine in Canada and saying, look, they did a bunch of work up there with a higher number of people. and they've not found sufficient evidence to say conclusively that chrysotile asbestos is bad for you. But as you say, Matthew, he's not necessarily somebody that other parts of the government are listening to. So EPA officials, CDC, they're looking at him and they're saying, no, (laughs) you're one, they were talking about him and saying, well, you're, you're a geologist. We get that. You're not a public health official. And so they didn't feel that he should be weighing in on public health issues. And they also felt that he may even have been involved in some, as they put it, statistical manipulation. 
So there's a lot of questioning going on, even among government officials. Do you get the sense that the people in Globe really felt condescended to? There's a lot of local expertise there. There's, you know, they find this guy who they feel like has a lot of bona fides to, to speak on these issues. And they just sort of are told again and again, you know, well, we know what's best for you. I think to a degree, yeah, that they are looking around their community. They know their community. They've lived there. They're the ones who have been there for decades. They have been involved in the mining industry. Even these two men, Wood and Gerhardt, they were involved. One was an insurance agent. One was a mining executive. And so they feel like they know the industry better and that they're being told by government officials from Washington, D.C., that oh, what they're the worst, doing right? is wrong. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like these outsiders are telling them, your place is not healthy. You guys are doing something bad. A somewhat similar story, although with some different overtones, takes place in Leadville, Colorado. But the difference in Leadville is that, you know, in Globe, this debate eventually dies down. The two people who are the, um, you know, biggest objectors, uh, you know, they, they eventually passed away. And the site gets, it's just a an empty lot now, right? But in Leadville, the cleanup's still quite active and there's still signs of the town's mining past kind of everywhere. People are living alongside tailing piles and, and old pieces of machinery, right? Correct. It's it's everywhere. You can go up to to Leadville. You can even drive around on something they call the Route of the Silver Kings. See all sorts of piles. They're everywhere. And even in town, on the east side of town, in some people's yards, you can see old, maybe small little head frames or something that marks like a shaft where an old mine probably is. So it's all over. And that eastern side of town and also the southern side of town, these are the areas of Leadville where the contamination was worse and where for a while people were advised to even keep their children from playing in their own yards. Right. Yeah, those those areas of town are particularly interesting. The east side had a lot of those mine shafts, but the south side had big smelters back in the day. None None of them are there now, but the remnants of them are, the big slag piles and things like that. And so this is a location where you did see a lot more exposure up through the point when those smelters stopped functioning. And in these areas of high exposure, there was evidence that a lot of children in homes that were constructed on mine waste sites were suffering from lead poisoning. Right. So the the smelters in particular, when they existed, I mean, if you ever see pictures of these, it can be pretty wild. They're belching smoke out of these large smokestacks, and it can make the whole environment just so dark and really almost look hellish in a lot of ways. Um, descriptions of that time often make that comparison. And in that smoke are all sorts of things. It's lead, it's cadmium, it's bismuth. It's all these things that 
when you ingest them as a living organism, it's not going to be good for your health. One of the problems with lead exposure is that it's not expected that people are going to become acutely ill, even over time. So like in the situation in Globe, you know, with asbestos exposure, you know, that often leads to acute illnesses later on. But for lead, it's going to be chronic and not immediately obvious and not even obvious over the long term because there are these slow degradations in health. And one of the those problems can be brain damage. Um, and, and one EPA official noted, for instance, that, you know, you can't just say to a mother and father that their kid would be 10 IQ points smarter if they hadn't been exposed to lead. This creates another challenge of communicating concerns to people who live in a local area and have been there for a long time. Yeah, that's one of the the big parts of debate that they've had, you've got something that maybe some types of cleanup in the area could be more accepted. You can see the effects, like you're saying, right? I mean, people getting acutely ill, but this lead situation where when you have issues with lead exposure, it takes a while to build up. It can affect children more quickly, and it is going to be a matter of something like maybe the ability to make it through school more easily. And so when officials are coming in in the 1980s and telling Leadvilleites, hey, you've got lead in your soil, you need to clean it up, your kids are getting exposed, it's not good for them. The locals are looking around. They're saying, well, how do you know? We don't see a bunch of kids getting sick. Um, There are some extremely derogatory kinds of ways that they talk about it. Like we don't see any two-headed kids or something like that. Um, And they, they don't, they're not convinced, but that's something that these officials are looking at and saying, well, we wish we could tell you, but it's so hard to convince somebody and say like, Hey, if they hadn't been exposed to lead, their IQ might be 10 points higher or something along those lines. As I was learning about Globe and Leadville, I couldn't help but draw comparisons to the challenges that a lot of government health officials have been having over the past three years with communicating to many local communities about the risks of COVID transmission. I've got to assume you've noticed these parallels as well in your work, yeah? Absolutely. Yeah, it's been really fascinating to watch the whole process of the way that the media and locals and (laughs) government officials, I mean, just any way you can categorize groups of people have reacted to information and knowledge about public health issues. And when they do or they don't decide to accept that form of knowledge, that information. And it it was fascinating to watch this unfold while working on a project that I never expected to have such intense relevance to the same situation. When did you start to realize that? I mean, like, at what point in the pandemic did you go, oh, my gosh? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, Gosh, probably during a lot of the the closures 
you know, um, early on when everything shut down and we weren't allowed to leave our houses and all of that and people maybe wondering about what that meant, how long that would last. But definitely by the time we started talking more and more about masks and whether or not to wear masks and how much people accepted that or did not accept that reminded me so much of the way that these towns had dealt with. Do we accept the information we're receiving about health and what we can do to to maybe prevent something even if we're not seeing it or um, experiencing it? What conclusions have you made about you know, like for the sake of public health, how these discussions could have been improved on all sides? It's a, a good question, a big question. Um, this one to me feels as though there's so much promise for listening to each other a little bit more. There are clear moments in these towns where the local knowledge was problematic and maybe did lead to some threats to health. For example, in Globe, if they had allowed this asbestos to continue flying around, I mean, I don't know, that might have posed a pretty bad health risk there. In Leadville, there were other moments in their history where the local knowledge was the knowledge that was correct. They said, hey, we should move forward with this kind of plan on what to do about a drainage tunnel. <laughs> and the officials didn't listen and they put a bunch of money into studying it and ultimately came to the same conclusion as these other locals had. And so considering those kinds of examples, the idea of public health and paths forward to me says there needs to be a lot of a lot more listening going on. A lot of these public meetings that are held, people don't feel listened to. So even officials don't feel listened to, locals don't feel listened to. And it seems that there may be a better forum for that, or at least more attention towards that kind of practice. And yet, we live in a world today where it does seem like we've gotten better and better at not listening to one another, right? With surrounding ourselves with thought bubbles and and uh, assuming that we're at cross purposes at all times on all issues. That makes those kinds of conversations tougher. It does. And I think that one of the big things, too, about what these towns tell us is we might feel like we're on different sides, but maybe we're not. Maybe we actually all have the same goal in mind. We're just differing on how to achieve that goal. And so talking more about what are the ways that we're trying to achieve the same goal and what might work moving forward. You're working on a book about Globe and Leadville and many of the other cities that have been impacted by toxic industrial waste and, and the very messy process of cleaning it all up. 
what's the big message that you're hoping readers are going to carry away from that? I hope that there would be a big takeaway about respect. It's really hard sometimes to step into each other's shoes, especially if you've never lived in a certain place. And by reading a book like this, you could have that chance. You have that chance to step into the shoes of a local resident who really wants to see the asbestos industry continue or step into the shoes of an EPA official who is trying really hard to convey knowledge about health to the local residents. And having those moments to really see from different perspectives, I think, gives you that moment to, to gain that sense of respect. So respect and looking into those different perspectives would be the ultimate goal here. That's Nichelle Frank. She's an assistant professor of U.S. history at Utah State University Eastern, where she studies the effects of the U.S. environmental and historic preservation movements on cultural landscapes in intermountain mining towns. Nichelle, thank you. Thank you so much. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday on UPR and Thursdays and Sundays on KCPW. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University and from public radio listeners like you. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>